I am so delighted to be here at uh, Christ Ridge Church. Christ Ridge Church has been a dear friend uh, to the Lees for quite a number of years. We started our missionary journey back in 2007 and returned home from the mission field last December and have started to plant a church in Indian Land, South Carolina. And so before I say anything else, let me say thank you, Christ Ridge Church, for your constant support, especially the prayers of the saints. Um, honestly, we could not do it without you. And uh, the, the fervent, effectual prayers of the righteous availeth much. And God has blessed us immensely because of your prayers. Thank you. Um, I will be preaching from 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, uh, 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, verses 12 through 19. And I want to just say a little bit before we get started that this is a text about suffering. So I, I want you to prepare your hearts. Um, it depends on how the Spirit strikes you as to whether it will be heavy or not. But I do pray that as the Spirit leads you, that you'll think on these things deeply as we consider the church in our modern age versus the church in the first century and the differences that exist between the two churches and what may be our future as things in this world seemingly continue to get darker and darker and more difficult. So if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I will be reading beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from the ESV. I pray that uh, that's not a challenge for anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let all, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like for us to consider this morning as we think about this text the real direct physical assault on the people of the first century church. They were going through tremendous difficulty and at this time 
First Peter, Peter writes First Peter to the church in order to encourage them because of this direct assault on the members of the church. But as I was preparing um, to share this message with you tonight, the challenge, the problem that we have is this is not our experience. Right? As we think about how, how do we find meaning for us today when that is not the reality that we face at the moment? Do we just say, well, that's, that's just really nice. I'm glad it's there. You know, and praise God, we don't suffer. And that's, surely that's a possibility. But at the same time, I really do believe there's real meaning for us as we consider what's happening even at this very moment around the world. And as that darkness, as that evil continues to press in onto the church. So I want to ask a a couple of things. You know, if you can think of some recent examples of religious persecution that you're aware of right now in the world. What's going on? Where's it happening? Right? And surely it's not too hard to say, look at what's happening in Israel. Right? Look at what's going on in London and in New York and across the globe as people who just identify as Jews and don't necessarily say they're Israelis, but just because they're Jewish are being persecuted. Now that's the kind of thing that Peter has in mind, right? Or how about, you know, in the United States... Who's been persecuted here in the U.S.? Surely the Mormons were persecuted by, believe it or not, Christians in the 19th century, right? Or slaves that came over from Africa and and they had been uh, Christianized. They'd received the gospel and they wanted to worship. And yet they were prohibited, again, by the church from doing so. Really, the closest thing to Protestants being persecuted in this country, really, we have to go all the way back to 1564. Some of you may know this. The Spanish had already uh, established colonies in St. Augustine and in Florida by that time. Been in the area for a long time. Uh, We served in Panama City, Panama. Do you know that Panama City, Panama was established in 1517? I mean, it's just hard to believe. So already in Florida, the Spanish are there and the Huguenots. And Huguenots were Calvinist Protestants who were being persecuted by the Spanish church in France. And they came over to the United States. They landed in St. Augustine. And the Spaniards wiped them out. Every last one of them. But that's how far back you have to go in this country to really talk about this kind of direct persecution that Peter's talking about. Praise be to God that we've not had to experience that. But we do find a dilemma here. You know, we do wrestle with this idea of of meaning for us in the world today. How does this apply to the church? How does it apply to you and me um, as individuals? And, you know, as we look around, uh, 
I think everybody would say the, the Christian church in the United States is declining. And if you look at all the surveys, all of them would agree and say, in general, the evangelical church is on the decline. There are more Christians in the United States than there ever has been. And yet, we see the church getting smaller and smaller on average. So as we think about this, as we think about persecution, we would say, you know, the church is in decline, but it's not experiencing persecution. And, and I know some of you have heard this before about the Chinese under, in communist China, where Christians have said, we will pray that the Lord would take persecution away from you. And they say, no, no, don't do that. Because it is the persecution that actually is the flame and the zeal that grows the church. But in the first century, the Christians as a group were, they were everywhere. They were in North Africa, they were in the Middle East, they were in Asia Minor, they were in Greece and up through the middle of Europe and over to to, uh, Italy and even into Spain and moving up into the British Isles, France and the British Isles. So Christians were everywhere. I mean, they were moving out fast, but they weren't big. It was a small group. Everywhere you went, there were these small groups of Christians. And so because they were small, they were easily persecuted. And we even see Paul, Paul, when he was Saul, right? Saul is there in the book of Acts and he's standing right there in front of, of Stephen as Stephen is martyred. He's stoned to death. For his Christian witness, right, they take Stephen's clothing, they bring it, they lay it at Saul's feet. And Saul's, uh, Stephen prays to the Lord as he's dying, right? And he sees the glorious vision of God in, in the heavens. And he says, Lord, forgive them that we would have that same faith that Stephen had. So it's a small group, but they're being hunted by the Jews. They're also being persecuted by Gentiles. So for religious reasons and for economic reasons. I have a couple examples. Um, And because they're small, they make easy scapegoats, right? This says this in um, Acts 13, 44, if you're taking notes. So when the Jews saw the crowd, so um, Paul and Barnabas are going around and they're, they're witnessing, right? They're doing their missionary journeys throughout the region. And it says this, but when the Jews saw the crowds, right? So all these people are coming to hear the good news and they're gathering around them in throngs, thousands of people to hear what's going on. It says, and they were filled with jealousy. The Jews were. So Paul looks at him, and this is what it says in verse 46, since you thrust it, the gospel, aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Boy, this is bold, isn't it? We are turning to the Gentiles. Let us have that kind of zeal for Christ when that day comes. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district just for sharing the word of God. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and they went on to Iconium And disciples, and listen to this, 
So how would you react if you've just been persecuted and driven out of a city? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Lord, let that be our prayer. Lord, when that day comes for every one of us, let us be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Right? That brings me to my first point. Suffering is to be expected. Somehow, some way, we need to put ourselves in a place where that is actually what's happening. Will it be direct? Perhaps it isn't direct physical violence against us. But as we bring the gospel into our culture, into the places that we live and work, right? And we're unashamed of it. It, it should be doing something one way or the other, right? It should be drawing those who the Holy Spirit's work in it and bringing them in, or it should be repulsing people. And that's what happens. That's what causes the persecution. People are repulsed by the gospel, and then they strike out because of it. It says this in verses 12 and 13. I'll say it for you again in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see that? So when we suffer because of the gospel, we are all actually experiencing. Christ's sufferings. We become a part of that, right? Are we not the body of Christ? And so when we begin to suffer, we're actually suffering as a part of that body. But let me ask you this question. What is actually so offensive about these words, about Jesus, about what Christians like Paul and Barnabas were saying, or Silas, or John Mark as they went around and they shared the gospel? What's wrong? Hey, listen, if I... If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can live forever. Why is that so offensive? Well, first of all, to the Jews, it was blasphemy. Jesus declared he was God. And I'll just give one example. If you read the, book, the Gospel of John, the whole book is dedicated to proving that Jesus is God. But in John chapter 8, in verse 58, it says this, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and when he says that, right, he's saying, listen to me. I say to you, before Abraham was, and you guys all know it, I am. And so what he was saying about himself is, I existed. I'm here right now in front of you, but I existed before Abraham ever existed, and I am Yahweh. They knew exactly what he meant. Their response was they picked up stones and they wanted to stone him to death. To the Gentiles, persecution could be religious. I don't know if you know this, some of you may know this, but if you were a Christian in the first century in that Roman time frame, right? They had, you had to worship the Caesar. You had to also worship, there's the whole Parthenon of the gods that you had to, had to worship and bow down to. And if you didn't, they considered you an atheist. Isn't that crazy? In Acts chapter 16, it says this. So uh, they're teaching a religion that 
we are not allowed to follow. That's Acts uh, 16.21. It said, many people had gathered around Paul and Silas. They were camping, uh, calling out things against them. The leaders, and this is amazing. We've seen this in the news recently. I want you to think about this for a second. The leaders had the clothes of Paul and Silas taken off and had them beaten with sticks. Where have you seen people in the news recently who have had their clothes stripped off and paraded? Now, why would you do that? You know, the whole purpose of this is to humiliate somebody, right? To strip them of their humanity, to make them less than a person. And here we see the Gentiles, because Paul and Barnabas and uh, Paul and Silas here are actually sharing about the Hebrew God. They're actually stripped of their clothes and beaten. But it could also be economic. In, in the same uh, passage in Acts 16, right? They're, they're in Asia, Asia Minor and they're going from city to city, which is modern day Turkey, and they're sharing the gospel wherever they go. And as they're going along at one point, this uh, demon possessed girl starts following behind them, right? And everywhere they go, she says, These are the servants of the Most High God. Day after day, it goes on for a few days. This little girl's following behind him, shouting these things. They go along, and Paul gets, he gets tired of it. And he says, and he just says, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And the demon leaves the little girl, and what would you think they would all do because this girl is no longer possessed? That we would rejoice and celebrate and say, yay, praise the Lord, this little girl is no longer tormented by these demons. No, listen to what it says here. The girl's owners saw that they could not make money. Right? She was being trafficked, is the way we might say that today, for what she could do as a seer into the future, right? As a fortune teller. And they were making money off of her as a fortune teller. And so the girl's owners saw that they could not make money with her anymore. Then they took hold of Paul and Silas and dragged them to their leaders. persecution of the church by Jews today? Probably not likely. I would say most definitely not likely. But where might it come from? From the non-religious? From like the Gentiles as Paul might have said? That's, that's a whole lot more likely, isn't it? I don't know if you saw this uh, November 9th New York Post, if any of you read the New York Post. Miranda Devine, she writes a column, a regular column for her. And she was watching the, uh, the, the, um, the voting that went on recently. Virginia was for governor and a couple of other positions. That was, it's an off year around the rest of the country, but they're voting for um, different uh, people. They're trying to gain the, uh, the Virginia's House of Commons back from uh, the Democrats, and I, 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 whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I really uh, doesn't matter. But this one cons- uh, Republican poll worker is there to, to hand out the the description. You know who's on the ballot, 
Who should you vote? If you're a Republican, who's on the ballot? Who should you vote for? There's a Democrat poll worker right there. They had one. You know, if you're a Democrat, who's on the ballot? Who should you vote for? And this guy comes out and he says this to this um, Republican poll worker, try not to be buddy-buddy with these people because they put on the face of a good neighbor. But they support, and listen to this, and I don't know this guy, and it doesn't come up in there whether he's a Christian or not. He's just at this point, he's a Republican. They put on the good face of a neighbor, but they support lynch mobs and the KKK. Or they're blanking Bible-beating bigots and freaks. So as we think about meaning, we think about where this might come from, right? As, as we have experienced the peace of the United States, and it feels like it's diminishing. Where might persecution come from? And here's one example. And I have another one for you. Some of you may have heard that Mike Johnson, who is the new Speaker of the House, right? He's a representative from the state of Louisiana. And he's just recently installed. As, I mean, he hadn't been there two weeks as Speaker of the House. And he says, as he's been interviewed, so tell us, who is Mike Johnson? And he says, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a Southern Baptist. And this is, quote, unquote, my faith informs everything I do. Praise the Lord. Right? We have a man in the U.S. House of Representatives who is unafraid to stand up and say, I follow Jesus Christ. Washington Post editorial, Ruth Marcus writes, Mike Johnson is as dangerous as Jim Jordan. I'm not trying to to drive a wedge, a, a political wedge here. What I'd like for you to see here is what is happening as it relates to being a Christian and believing that Jesus Christ is Lord in our country? And how will persecution come up against us? And I feel it. I feel it coming. Jim Jordan's also an evangelical Christian, by the way, if you didn't know. But why? That's that question again. Why? Why are we considered so dangerous? I'll look around the room. Do any of you here see yourselves as dangerous? You know, FBI top 10 up on, you know, some billboard at the post office that you're so dangerous, your neighbors would, you know, they avoid you at all costs. I doubt it. That's the growing sentiment that's happening in our country. Christian, dangerous. And I'll tell you this. I think, I believe that it's because we believe there is truth. That there's real truth, true truth, absolute truth. And because of that also, there's judgment. There will be judgment. And it's funny, and I'll I'll say this, this blasphemy in Israel in the first century, I, I think it was just a pretext. For the Sanhedrin, for the religious people in power in the first century, in Palestine, in that area, right? Jesus wouldn't conform to their power structure. 
we're in charge here. And you either get in line or it's going to be very costly. It was costly. Jesus saw the the law of God as absolutely true. Every word of it. And he said, I didn't come to do away the law with the law. But to fulfill it. Right, so Jesus' whole reason for being is to embody all that the law is and the goodness of it because it's a reflection of God's character, His holiness, His goodness, His truth. And to violate it in Jesus' eyes put you in jeopardy of judgment. And so the Sanhedrin saw Him like many in the West do Christians today. They say it like that. They saw him as a dunce, a simpleton, and a fool. To the Sanhedrin, the law was just a way to exercise and maintain control and power and money and all that goes with it, right? I just want you to think now as we start talking about how we find meaning in this text from the first century, how do we find meaning? And I think you're starting to see it with me, what's going on, right? How are we viewed? We're viewed as dangerous and we need to be controlled, right? We're unable to think on our own because we're dunces and simpletons and fools, Or, as some have said, we're deplorables. Perhaps you've heard that, right? Or bitter clingers, or bitter Bible clingers even. Really? Quaint, and honestly, at the end of the day, think about this for a second. In your experience, this is their experience, Do dead men rise from the dead? Right? Do they come out of tombs alive? And this is the problem that they have. And that's why they think you and I are quaint. Who would believe such a fantasy? But the other part of it that they don't like is we believe that it's true just like Jesus believed that it's true. And we also believe like Jesus did that there's judgment. Now we deserve judgment, right? But as a free gift, God has rescued us from that judgment by giving us faith to believe. So we're not any better intrinsically. We're not any better. But the problem is they don't like the idea of judgment because they don't want to be holy. They want to define holiness themselves. What's acceptable and what's not. And again, we talk about meaning for today. Where do you see this idea where they want to control the idea of what's holy? Where is it gone? And where has it gone astray? And I'm just going to mention it should be, it's the, the elephant in the room, but transgenderism? Right? No. The Lord says, no, I made them male and female. Oh, no, you didn't. We're going to tell you what it means to be a man and a woman. See how that works? 
And see how this all makes sense to us. See how we find that meaning as it starts to percolate back up into our very own lives right today. And so this, this absolute drive for absolute power, and it leads to absolute pragmatic outcomes. And they're not always nice outcomes, right? So the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, their drive for absolute power led them what? To crucify Christ. Now, do you believe that in, at, the, at the moment when there's any kind of issue about who's going to stay in power, that those who don't know God and view us as just a collection of cells, that they're going to have any really respect for you? Those in power will do anything and support anyone who will keep them in power, including crucifixion. So what does that uh, mean for you? And that leads to the persecution that... It's, uh, it's, it happens all over the world today. It's just not happening here. And this is where the second part of this verse, when you experience these trials, what are we told to do? And this is so foreign to us, maybe not to some of you. Maybe some of you have experienced real suffering. And in your suffering, you rejoice in the midst of your suffering. You want to drive an unbeliever mad as they come against you in persecution, as they come to bring pain and inflict humility on you, if you start singing for joy. Why is that? Why, how can we do that, right? If we understand what we believe, if you, and if you're here and you're not a believer, listen to this. You know, Jesus Christ died on the cross, but he could not be kept in the grave, right? The Spirit of God came in and breathed life. If God can breathe the worlds into existence, surely He can breathe life into one small human form, right? Death couldn't keep Him in the ground, and it can't keep you in the ground either if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so death has no sting for us, and therefore we can rejoice in the face of that kind of persecution, The second point is suffering tests our sincerity. And it says this in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And this idea of judgment here is puzzling. And I'm sure many of you have read this before and go, this is kind of odd, right? I'm saved by grace, but now there's judgment in the house of God. How does that work? Well, let me say this, and you have to understand this in relation to verse 12. In verse 12, it says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that test you. For the believer, it cannot mean Judgment of sin that leads to condemnation. It can't. All of, you know, have you memorized Romans 1? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It can't be possible 
So what is it then? Right? Judgment here is linked to testing. And what does testing do? And this is one of the things that I really pray that as a church that we, we don't forget this. Testing is, it is a test of our sincerity. Right? To become a member of a PCA church, what do you have to do? It's not hard. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to belittle the church, uh, but all you have to do is have a good testimony of, of your Christian witness. You say, you know, I, I was saved on October 13th, 1984, gave my life to Christ, and I've been living a Christian life ever since then. And you can be a part of the church. You don't have to be a Presbyterian. You, don't have to, you can be Methodist. You can be Baptist. It really doesn't matter to join the Presbyterian church. Testimony, right? A valid testimony. So how do we really find out, you know, what's going on in there? And so as we think about this, these tests, right? It, this is the place where all these things are working together as, as the sincerity of our witness comes into play. Okay, are you really a Christian? Well, let's find out. I remember I was working at Centauri Hampton General Hospital in Hampton, Virginia. I couldn't have been, gosh, I don't know, 26, 27 years old. And I did one little simple thing. This is way back in the 80s. I had on my little blue blazer and my button-down shirt like I've got on today. I came into work. I had my little tie on. I come in. I've got this one little tiny gold cross right here on, on the lapel of my coat. And my boss said, you can't wear that here. Can you believe that? I can't wear just a teeny tiny gold uh, cross on my lapel. It drove her crazy. So what did I do? I said, okay, I'm going to wear it on my car. I took it off and I put it on my board that everybody could see. It went bink, and I stuck it right there for everybody to see. I, I didn't get along with this lady, you can imagine. So... It's not just, right? It's not just the good things, but it's the difficult things as we think about um, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purposes, right? It doesn't say all the good things work together for good. It says all things work together for good. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. So when we think about it, it's good and evil. So good and evil things work together for good. So as suffering comes upon you, as sickness comes upon you, right? As disease comes upon you, as death comes upon you. you Death wasn't supposed to happen. And we grieve because we experience that, right? But God is using even death, just like He did at the cross, right? to bring good out of it. See that? See that? So if you want to say, where's an example of that? You just look at the cross. God takes something that's intrinsically evil, murder, and he raises Jesus Christ up from the ground and says, now I'm going to use that to breathe life into all of my followers so that they can have the same life that he does. So listen, is, is my faith as we experience these trials, is my faith superficial? Is it only skin deep at the first hint of difficulty? Will we abandon Christ? You know, you, you're in good company 
right? Jesus gets arrested. And I know a lot of you know this, what happened. His disciples were right there by his side. If it's going to happen to Jesus, let it happen to us too. No, they ran. They fled. And when Peter, the guy who wrote first Peter, when they confronted Peter, he said, I don't know him. Yeah, you're you're with him. No, no, I, I don't know who you're talking about. Sure, you're one of those guys from Nazareth. I'm telling you, I never knew him. You can see it, him fighting back. Wonderful. This should really encourage all of us, right? And so what does Jesus do when he sees him? He doesn't say, you know, you abandoned me. Why don't you just get out of here? I don't want to ever see you again. Jesus knew it. Peter, do you love me? That was his, feed my sheep. Rededicate yourself and put yourself back where you were and go out into this miserable, dark world. Feed my sheep. I often, I'll have people that... You know, they're having troubles at work or they're having troubles with a girlfriend. They might be having troubles with a husband. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons people say, you know, I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, what, how am I supposed to think about this? I, I, I want to quit. I want to go find another job. And I say, hold on for a second. Maybe you do need to go find a new job. But hold on for a little while. Because I, and I want to say this to everybody. I am certain just as the way that I've experienced difficulty in life, like God was using all of that difficulty to shape me, right? To grind out that worldly man and get it out of my inside so that I could do the work of the ministry. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'll just tell you right now, talk to my wife later. She'll let you know. Far from it. That's not what I mean by that but someone that the Lord can use and be fit to be a part of His ministry. And that comes through difficulty. It comes through real difficulty. So hey, so hang in there. And I want to say this. I don't mean to, and let me make sure I, I kind of put a caveat in that. I don't mean so, okay, you're in an abusive, physically abusive relationship. Stay in that. No, I don't mean that. So make sure I'm I'm clear about that. I don't mean stay in an abusive relationship. And I don't mean do something foolish like go into a gang neighborhood and say, well, I'm going to go in there alone with the gospel and just go get killed. I don't mean that either. Use wisdom in how you do those things. But if you're facing hardship, I guarantee you the Lord's trying to teach you something about you and your relationship to Him. That uh, this idea of testing, right, the sincerity of our faith, it leads us to this third point that su- suffering for Christ actually leads us to Christ. And then it says this in this uh, verse 19, the last verse of this paragraph. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I want to point out something here in this verse. And the first thing, it should be obvious, that suffering is because of your faith. 
right? And this suffering is God's will. And I'll say that again. We don't say, how many of you think that God is omnipotent, right? All of us would say, absolutely, God's omnipotent, right? He can do anything he wants. So he's not able to stop the suffering that you're experiencing, any kind of suffering. No, in fact, God has done more than just permit it, right? It's a part of his plan for you to go through whatever that suffering might be. And here it is right here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Most people have a real problem with this, right? Most people at that first moment, right, that hardship comes in Hey, you know, I can't pay the mortgage. It's been three months. I'm going to lose the house. What am I going to do? What are you doing to me? Diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't look good. I don't deserve this, Lord, right? Lord, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? And I'm not trying to belittle anybody here that might be experiencing those kinds of challenges but I want you to know if you're there it's because the loving God who has you right in the palm of his hands has you there for your very own well-being it's hard to see it sometimes it's his will and I will say it is a mystery you just you have to hear that Romans 8, 8, 28 verse. All things work together to, for good, right? And Lord, I believe that, that you are in the middle of those all things and you have me right where you want me. And the reason that we can do that again, right? So as we experience this hardship, we can rejoice because we know that God is in control. Not because he's out. Imagine for a second that God wasn't in control. And all this hardship comes on you. All this suffering and sickness and death and dying and persecution. All of a sudden, all these things are happening and you think God is not in control? All of a sudden we think, no, I'm going to entrust my soul. See that? The Lord is using the difficulty for us to have faith and to say, Lord, you have done that for Christ and now by Him, you're going to do that for us. And I'm going to place all of me into your hands. God uses, God uses the unrighteous and sinful free acts of men and women to bring about events that always advance his plan exactly as he planned it. Let me say that again for you. God uses the unrighteous and sinful free acts. We are not robots. We, even in our sinful state, the image of God is too dignified for us to be robots. Robots. 
uses the sinful acts of men and women like you and me, I'll even add, right? To bring about events that always advance his eternal plan exactly as he planned it. Free acts exactly as God planned it. And that is why you and I can rejoice when we experience sin, sickness, suffering, persecution. Because God has brought us to that place for our sakes, for the advancement of the church, and the building up of His kingdom. And I want to say this, the Bible goes so far as to say that even Jesus' crucifixion was part of God's predetermined plan. And I know many of you know this passage in Acts chapter 2. It says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was crucified by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And if you want to write that down, that's Acts 2, 22 through 24. And then the free act is, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Church, our sharing in the glories of heaven, this is also going to blow you away, is conditional. What? You see, fleeing from suffering for our faith demonstrates we're not entrusting ourselves to God and His will. But Paul says it like this, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Wow. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here it comes. Provided we suffer. Ever read that before? Ever seen that in Romans 8, 16 and 17? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See that we are heirs if we suffer. So our good works, our good works, are, that's right. We go out and we share the gospel. We share the words of the gospel with our neighbors, with our enemies, whoever it might be. But it's even more than that, right? It's not just words. It's also entrusting our own souls to God's providence, whatever may happen. So it's both and, right? You heard people say, oh, I do relational ministry, but they don't ever share the gospel. That's not the gospel. Or some people share the words, but they never share their lives. I'll say this, that's not the gospel either. Beloved of God, as we think about this, as we understand how God is using the difficulty that's in front of us. And for us, it's really quite light. I would pray that it wouldn't happen to us, but I do believe it's coming. Will you entrust yourselves and your souls to our Savior? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray 
that we might not experience persecution. But if it comes, Lord, I pray for everyone here. Lord, would you give us your spirit that we might endure, that we might persevere, that we would lift up the name of Christ, reject the name of Jesus Christ, let our answer be, no, I could never reject the one who has given me life. Lord, help our hearts to grow in that knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might be ready for that day of reckoning, that we might glorify your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.